0: Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood, and I write science fiction and fantasy. I used to be in the Navy, spent 20 years doing submarine operations, among other cool things. Learned to fly planes, learned to scuba dive, had a bunch of kids, saw the world, and I started writing fiction. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing my stories with you in the hope that you'll have fun, and also that you'll like my stuff and come back for more. And maybe help brother out with buying a book or two so uh, sit back relax i'm going to tell you a story hey friends i'm michael kingswood and it's story time it's been a little bit of a delay since the last one of these i did and what can i say it's been kind of crazy nuts around here the last week and a half or so i'm sure you guys can understand why with all the uh, chicanery going on man kids are out of school hunkering down Watching with amusement as people go and buy all the toilet paper in the store but none of the food and it's been weird anyway um hope everybody's doing well out there staying safe having fun uh but i figured you guys could use more stories so here i come gonna just move on right into the next couple chapters of the pericles conspiracy so uh sit back enjoy i'll talk to you on the other side Chapter forty three Camp Tycho Two days of driving does not sound like much, in the abstract, but what Jervis failed to mention in his description of the distance, or rather what Joe failed to truly appreciate, was that it was almost literally two days, two entire twenty four hour periods, from Brisbane to Camp Tycho, past the mountains to the city's west, and into the outback beyond, where the settlements were few and far between, and then further still into the vast desert that dominated the continent's interior. They stopped only for fuel. Those stops were few enough that they carried extra fuel cans within the vans so they could ensure they made it to the next one, and for calls of nature. Fortunately, the vans were large enough that they were able to lie down in the back and sleep in shifts. But the sleep was short and fitful, as more often than not, the van would hit an uneven patch of pavement or a pothole and jar the sleepers awake. By the time they reached their first rally point, two hours from the camp, Joe was exhausted. The rally point lay within a small box canyon that descended into the earth beside a butte. Joe had no idea if that's what they called them down under or not, but that was the only word that came to mind, that stood out from the flat countryside like a beacon. At first she had objected, it was too prominent a landmark. Surely stopping there would leave them visible to tourists or patrols or you name it. But the canyon was deep and would shield them from prying eyes, and there was no other option that would even come close to offering good concealment for a long way in any direction. They needed to rest after the long drive or they would certainly fail and this was the best place for it it was a risk but a reasonable one all the same joe made sure to set a watch up near the canyon's entrance before putting everyone else in the rack thomas brought the van to a halt behind a small rise and turned off the engine in the passenger seat joe peered out the windshield toward the top of the rise where the glow of electric lights a small distance away eclipsed the stars it was a beautiful night clear and dark with no moon. They had made sure of that during the planning process. With a few weeks before Agrippa would be ready to sail, Joe's little team had the luxury of selecting a night with a new moon for the caper. Convenient. Of course, no moon meant little with all the high powered security lights rigging the place. That was where Winston came in, assuming he came through and was not discovered. That was just one of the many things that could go wrong tonight, but Joe actually felt good about Winston's role. He had as much to lose as any of them, maybe more, if this thing went south. Joe glanced down at her wrist chronometer and frowned. Five minutes until the second van was due to arrive. They had waited until just after sundown and staggered their departure from the box canyon in order to draw less attention. Maybe ten minutes after leaving, they had cut off the road and set off cross-country toward this, the second rally point. It would not have been so bad except they had gone without headlights, or lights of any kind. Thomas drove using low-light goggles, but even still he had twice almost driven into a ditch that would have been impossible to get out of. Jo lowered her window and craned her neck to look behind, straining to make out the other van. Should have been a relief to not see a thing. That boded well for their plan, at least for the initial phase, but instead all she felt was dread. If they had hit one of those ditches, the plan was shot. There was a contingency, of course. She, Thomas, and Jorgen could probably accomplish the mission on their own, with Winston's help. But it would take longer, and the risk would be far greater than with the whole team. And worse, they would have to leave one of the team behind. The incubator was too large, it would take up the entire back of the van. Thomas knew that and had accepted the risk, but the thought of just leaving him behind where he would certainly be nabbed by the NSA, whether he chose it or not, made Joe's stomach lurch. It was not a choice that she wanted to make. So it came as a great relief when, a few moments later, the second van pulled up next to them and shut down. Everyone piled out of the vans and quickly got about their jobs. Grant and Thomas checked their weapons, then slung their rifles across their chest in tactical mode and split off, jogging in a separate direction to do a quick sweep of the immediate perimeter. They would subdue any patrols or individuals they found nearby. Not kill, subdue. Joe had been prepared to fight hard on that matter, back in Brisbane during the planning, but was surprised when Grant beat her to it. Better not to hurt or kill anybody if we can help it, he said. That gets messy. Fast. Watching the two brothers disappear into the night, Joe hoped that they remembered that. Malcolm walked up and held out her pack. It was black, just like the fatigues they all wore to better blend into the night. She accepted it with a quick nod, took a minute to pull a black knit hat out of the pack, then slipped the straps over her shoulders. Then she pulled the hat on and rolled it down until it covered her face completely except for her eyes and touched the pistol on her hip. Better not to hurt anyone, but there was being humane, and then there was being stupid. Of course, Joe was not entirely sure if she could shoot another person, if it really came down to it. Hopefully, she wouldn't have to find out. She reached into the van and pulled her night vision goggles from where she had left them on the dashboard. She had not bothered to wear them during the drive. She had tried for a short while but found them heavy and disconcerting to wear. But there would be little choice about using them now. Slipping them onto her head over top of the mask, she adjusted the straps and hit the power switch. It was like someone turned on the sun. What a moment ago had been lost in shadow was now clear, down to the little pimple on Courtney's chin before she pulled on her own mask. Joe took a moment to survey her team. Everyone looked ready. As soon as the brothers finished their sweep, they would make the signal to Winston, and then... The soft sound of boots on rocks behind her made Joe jump. She spun around, hand landing on the grip of her pistol, and found Thomas. Well, she thought it was Thomas, but it was hard to tell with his mask down. Standing there, his rifle held at the ready. Joe could not see his eyes behind the lenses of his goggles, but his tone when he spoke was disapproving. You make more noise than a band of teenage girls, he said, his voice low and serious business-like. Joe blew out a mixture of relief and exasperation, but nodded. This was a job that required stealth, at least in the initial stages. She needed to keep that one in mind. Thomas returned the nod and joined the group. A moment later, Grant emerged from a hollow of ground a few meters off to the left. Pretty impressive. Joe would not have thought it was possible to hide with the goggles making everything so bright, but he had managed it somehow. Training. Lots and lots of training. He exchanged fist bumps with Thomas, who gestured for them all to huddle up. The position is secure, Thomas said in the same low tone of voice. Looks like they have beefed up security since our last brief from Winston, though. I counted half a dozen guard posts. He paused and looked at Grant, who nodded, confirming the count. Joe cursed softly. Is it too much? Thomas did not answer for a long moment. Then he shook his head. No. They're spread out enough that we ought to be okay if we can take two of them down, but we're going to have to move quickly. Once Winston cuts the power, there will be a few minutes of confusion, In that time, you'll have to get the vans in and out of sight or we are done. What about the guards? We'll take care of it. He said no more, and Joe decided she did not want to know. All right, Joe said. Everyone ready? Again, nods all around. We'll wait for your signal, she said, and Thomas nodded. The two brothers departed swiftly, again disappearing like ghosts, despite the better visibility from Joe's goggles. She shook her head at their prowess, then stuck up her index finger and made a little circle in the air. Mount up. She got back into her van and turned on a small wireless receiver that lay on the console between the two front seats. A moment later, Malcolm joined her, taking the driver's seat. She was not sure because of his mask, but she could have sworn he was grinning. What? Malcolm turned to her and made the little finger circle again. Really? Joe rolled her eyes, but did not reply. Malcolm just chuckled and started the motor. Then they sat, awaiting the signal that would set the path for the rest of their lives. Chapter 44. In and Out. It seemed to take forever, but when Joe checked her wrist chronometer, only about ten minutes had passed when the wireless receiver clicked five times. A second later, the lights over the hill went out. All at once, then completely. A second or two later, the sound of an explosion reached them, causing Joe to jerk upright in her surprise. That was not part of the plan. She was about to signal Grant and Thomas to fall back, but the van next to her sped off toward the crest of the hill, Courtney and Jorgen apparently had no qualms about proceeding. Joe and Malcolm shared a look. I guess we go, he said, and floored it. As they crested the hill, Joe immediately saw the source of the explosion. At the rear of the camp, an outbuilding was ablaze. It was too far to see, but she was certain people were rushing in to fight the fire. And were those high-tension power lines running into that building? Well, that was one way to turn out the lights. The ride across the desert to the camp was bumpy, jarring, dangerous, terrifying, exciting, and blessedly short. Their rally point lay only a couple kilometers from Camp Tycho's main gate, and they covered the distance quickly. Not quickly enough to catch up with Courtney and Jorgen, though. Malcolm drove all out, but whichever of those two behind the wheel drove like a madman. Madwoman. Whatever. Very quickly, they reached the road again and turned toward the gate. The barrier was wide open. Joe looked as they sped through and saw three guards lying still on the ground. A second guard post lay a half a kilometer to the east, near the bend of the camp's fence line. It was hard to tell without binoculars, but there was no movement there. Joe presumed those guards were in a similar state. She hoped they were not dead, but at the same time she had to be impressed with Grant and Thomas's handiwork. And then they were through, speeding toward the camp's main building a bit less than a quarter kilometer away. Lights were beginning to come on around the building, but just a few, and those were not particularly bright emergency lighting run on batteries and usable mainly to guide people out of the building in an emergency joe found herself surprised an important outpost like this must surely have a backup generator somewhere like in that outbuilding the explosion made all the more sense if that were so malcolm turned left hard and it seemed he never took his foot off the accelerator because for a second joe thought the van was going to turn over but then it steadied up and she gave him a hard look, or at least she would have, had her goggles not obscured her eyes. Sorry, Malcolm said. He didn't sound it. They turned again toward the side of the main building where, from the schematics Winston showed them, a group of loading docks was located. And sure enough, as they rounded the corner, the docks came into view, along with Courtney and Jorgen's van, which was already parked before the first dock. Jorgen stood watch at the base of the stairs leading up to the dock doors, and Joe saw Courtney, already at work on the door's control pad, doing her thing. Malcolm eased the van into place beside theirs, and he and Joe hopped out. Took you long enough, Jorgen hissed. You drive like a maniac, Malcolm replied, his tone a mix of awe and annoyance. Jorgen snorted. Wasn't me. Courtney chuckled softly from where she was working the lock. Just because you two are pansy- Aha! Got it! The door's control panel beeped. Apparently the emergency power fed the doors, too, which made sense. And she turned back to Joe and the two men. We're in. The corridor stretching ahead looked familiar, and no wonder. It was the same corridor Winston had filmed through his implant. Of course, it looked the same as a million other corridors and buildings everywhere, but all the same, it felt like a place Joe had known forever. As though a few weeks now constituted forever. Ahead, the corridor bent to the right. If the video recording was any indication, the guard post leading to the lab itself lay not far beyond the bend. Wait here, Grant hissed. He and Thomas had joined back up with the group at the loading docks per plan, and led them through the dark and mostly deserted corridors, using the route the group had agreed upon and memorized during their planning session. The two looked pristine in their fatigues, as though they had not just been running through the desert and fighting with armed guards. Apparently their reputation was well earned, but there had been no need for their skills up to this point. The only people the group encountered were janitorial personnel and one man in a white lab coat who had evidently been working the midwatch. They all surrendered without a fight or found themselves tied and gagged before they even knew the group was nearby. That lack of resistance would likely not last if the guard post remained manned, and there was no reason to think it would not be. Joe nodded, and Grant and Thomas moved forward toward the bend on swift feet that nevertheless made little, if any, sound. There were some nice boots they had. Thomas reached the bend first and paused. He pulled something out of one of his pouches that were built into his web gear, a little camera from the look of it, and fed it to the very edge of the bend where it could just peek around the corner. He studied the camera screen for a second, then retracted it and turned back to Grant. He held up four fingers. Grant nodded and moved up next to his brother. Joe could not see precisely what they did next, but they took out gadgets of some sort and slipped them around the corner. A few seconds later, a pair of dull thumps echoed down the corridor, followed by the softer sounds of bodies hitting the floor. Thomas darted around the corner. Grant turned toward the rest of the group and waited for them to come along, then followed his brother. Joe traded looks with the other three. Courtney just shrugged. They know their stuff, she said. Then she hurried forward to catch up with the brothers. They did indeed. When Joe rounded the corner and reached the guard post, she found Grant zip-tying the last of the four guards' arms and legs together behind his back. The other three were trussed up the same, and gags shoved into their mouths despite the fact that they were still unconscious. A strange odor lingered around the guard post, sweet but with the undertone of something burnt or rotten, almost rancid. The leftovers of whatever had knocked the guards out, Joe surmised. Grant looked up as she passed, and Joe thought he grinned. Stun drones, he said. Same as we used outside. That was good to know. At least no one was getting badly hurt. That was the last thing Joe wanted. The lab should be just ahead, Malcolm said. Joe nodded. Let's keep moving. As before, the brothers led the way, rifles at the ready. Also as before, there was no resistance until they emerged onto the catwalk that ringed the research area. Stepping out onto that catwalk felt almost like stepping into a dream. More like a nightmare. As Joe looked down into the darkened room, bright to her through her low-light goggles, but lit only faintly by emergency lights, she could not suppress a shudder over what had happened there. Such an atrocity, and for what? What purpose did it serve, considering the aliens had given their technology freely? All they asked was the safety of their children, and this was how humanity responded? No, not humanity. Just bureaucrats in positions of power within the government. Had humanity, or even humanity's representatives in the assembly, being insulted, there was no way this would have happened. But the government had to have its secrets, didn't it? Right then, Jo found herself agreeing wholeheartedly with Isaac's wacky dogma. Well, almost. She shook her head, reminding herself to keep her mind on the business at hand. This was no time for philosophizing. Contact left, Thomas whispered. Joe looked that way and saw a number of men and women in lab coats, standing in a loose group in the machine shop portion of the lab floor. Of course, Winston had told them the researchers were working three shifts, so it was not uh, exactly a surprise to see them. What was a surprise was the immediate impulse Joe had upon seeing them. These were the perpetrators of the atrocity. They had not made the decision to start the project, but they had participated willingly. They could not claim to be just following orders. They were criminals of the highest degree. She almost ordered Grant and Thomas to kill them all. Only the certainty that they would have done so without hesitation stopped her. That, and because vengeance was not why she was there. Those monsters would receive justice one way or another, but that was not hers to dispense, and certainly not without a trial. Can you disable them like the guards, Joe asked, and receive only a derisive snort in response? Then Grant and Thomas went to work. Joe stepped through the little airlock into the chamber where the NSA stowed the incubator. Her heart in her throat, this was it—what she had come here for. Are there any eggs left? Joe froze mid-step; her blood going to ice water at the thought. She had never even considered that the NSA had been doing experiments for months and was on the verge of wrapping up. Why would they keep any of the eggs intact? If that were the case, much easier to just dispose of the last ones that would not be needed for their ghastly research. "'Oh, Lord, please let me not have done that, or this would have all been in vain.'" Stealing herself for the worst, she pushed through the inner airlock door and stepped into the chamber beyond. The incubator stood just as it had in Winston's video, from this angle apparently untouched and undamaged. Joe could not restrain herself from darting to its side and pressing the button the alien captain showed her, the one that opened the incubator's lid. It cracked open with a slight hiss of escaping gases and light mist poured out, like dry ice melting. Joe lifted the cover the rest of the way up and peered within, waving her free hand to clear the mist away. What she saw within broke her heart. When the alien captain turned the incubator over to her, it had been full of eggs, dozens of them. Now the incubator was less than half full. Tears born of fury and sadness over what had been done welled up despite Joe's attempts to stop them. No, she was not going to break down. This was business and she had to see it done. It did not help that she could not wait the tears away, though, with her goggles on a minute of deep breathing to regain her calm. Fucking bastards. That was Grant. He stood to Joe's left and was looking over her shoulder into the incubator. Joe had not noticed his approach, so caught up was she in her burst of emotion. Joe nodded agreement, then closed the lid with a solid click. Well, she said, feeling proud of how steady her voice sounded, at least to her own ears. We'll make things right, won't we? Damn right, he cleared his throat, then said. Next room's clear. One of them got to the exit, though, and Thomas had to shoot him. Joe's breath caught in her throat. He didn't? Nah, got him in the thigh. He'll be all right in a few weeks. Joe nodded. That would have to be good enough. It was too much to hope that no one would be hurt in this venture. She turned away from the incubator and moved a few paces away with Grant following at her side. As she left, Malcolm moved around to the back side of the incubator, where the researchers had installed their power feeds and probes. On the far side of the room, Courtney stood next to a safe inlaid in the wall, tapping her foot impatiently. Next to her, Jorgen worked on a computer console. This was why Jorgen was on the team. According to Winston, within that safe lay the rod the alien captain gave Joe, along with the incubator. The rod contained the star map to their home system and the recorded message for his fellows, and the safe was wired with extensive security algorithms that had to be bypassed before Courtney could even begin to crack it. It would be beyond useless to make off with the incubator, and not the rod. Joe hoped Jorgen was as good as everyone said. Then again, so far the rest of the team had more than proven their worth, and she had no reason to doubt it. I think we have it under control here, Joe said to Grant. He nodded and turned on his heel to disappeared through the airlock leading into the medical lab section, where Thomas was waiting. Together, they would reconnoiter, as they called it, through the lower-level corridors that the team would need to use to get out of the complex. Joe watched them go and tried not to think of all the things that could go wrong with the team split up like this, but they needed to know what lay ahead. They would not be able to move as quickly with the incubator in tow. Good thing it had that hovering system or moving it would literally take forever. It was really heavy. Um, Joe, we got a problem. Malcolm stuck his head up from behind the incubator, sounding pained. What's up? I don't see the hovering units. Joe blinked, dread surging up within her. What do you mean? She hurried over to Malcolm's side and squatted down next to him. He pointed to two open spaces within the incubator's innards. The hovering units were here and here, if you recall. Joe bit back a rebuke. She recalled all right. She had been furious when she learned that Malcolm had opened the unit up and tested the controls while they were still underway on Pericles. He had insisted it would cause no harm. He was just observing what did what, and anyway, he had already opened it once to analyze the power needs and install a power supply. But it was one thing to go into it to make sure it kept power. It was another thing to go into it tinkering just to see what was what. That was an unacceptable risk to take. After Malcolm's transgression, she had ordered the incubator locked away in a cargo storage, and changed the code to allow only her and her fellow duty captains access to it. You can't be sure that was the hovering system, not after only that one look. Malcolm leveled a direct stare at her, or what passed for a level stare beneath his goggles. That was not the only look I got. You're not quite so clever with codes as you think you are. Joe's jaw dropped open in shock. He had not. But even beneath his mask, it was obvious Malcolm wore that self-satisfied smirk that always annoyed Joe to no end. He had. That insubordinate, obstinate fool of a man. She bit back a snarl and stood, moving over to the incubator's control panel. She tapped the control that the alien captain used to put the incubator into hover. Nothing happened. Oh, hell. She tapped it again. Still nothing. Son of a bitch. Malcolm nodded, also standing. Told you. Joe had to restrain herself from hitting him. Okay, so the heist is in full swing now and we're deep into the enemy lair and finding all the gadgets and the gizmos and the eggs and their hovering systems that aren't there and ah, oh, now we're getting fun. Um yeah, so clearly lots more to do and but obviously it's going to be super easy as you can tell. No possible um, issues will come up. It will be perfectly fine. Nah. Couldn't possibly be any issues here. So, uh, yeah, come back next week and we'll talk about uh, the next couple chapters. Actually, not next week. I'm going to put out another episode here in just a couple days uh, to make up for my lack last week and because I want to. So, come back whenever the next one gets put up in a couple days, I guess, and uh, do the next couple chapters or go buy the book. I won't... uh, be mad at you if you do that and you can read ahead of where i'm reading and that'd be great uh another cool thing to talk to you about um i am doing a thing called a kickstarter campaign which uh if you guys have been around for a while you probably know what a kickstarters are it's a crowdfunding thing to raise funds <laughs> hence crowdfunding uh to do a project and the project i'm doing is as you know i've got my glimmervale books the five Glimmervale novels and there's only one published short story but i actually have written four Four, five now, I just written another short story about it about a week ago um, that are ready to be put out into the world three of them are ready to be put out into the world anyway um, and you may recall about a year and a half ago oh shoot, two years ago now I uh, did an audiobook of the first book and in fact I think the first thing I did on this podcast was Veritas Morte and then shortly after that we went through Glimmer Vale <clears throat> excuse me with uh, uh the audiobook version of it on here now the problem is i intended to do all five of the novels and all the short stories but the guy who was doing those uh, on narration he had a serious serious medical issue and it took him months to get through it but even then he was he was like two-thirds of the way done with out dweller second book when this thing hit him and even after he came, got over the medical thing he just wasn't up for narrating and and frankly i lost track of him and i've given him a bunch of time to get back on the horse but really at this point it's like well shoot i need to move on um yeah right because it's been over a year since the uh incident with him but anyway the issue is that a audiobooks are real expensive to make and b i'm gonna have to remake the first book, as well as the other ones, if I want to keep the narration consistent. And I was like, I've added up all the money for that. And it's like, man, that's a lot of money. Let's see if we can raise some money on Kickstarter. And uh, so, so far I set the the goal for the campaign pretty low, enough to do just one book. <clears throat> and if we do just the one, I'll do Outdweller and then come back and do the others later. Um, but uh, that's also, it, it, if so the goal, the true goal is to get as much as possible in order to do all the books now i don't know we'll see this has been going for about a week about halfway to my small goal um and if you guys haven't heard about this campaign so far and and uh please go check it out i'll put the link in the show notes uh so you can go see what's going on there i'd appreciate any help you can give and even if you can't support the campaign just go and spread the word about it that'd be great um because i I don't know about you, but I love audiobooks. I hate that these books are not fully into audio and that I've had to do it so slowly. And fundraising will probably help to... uh, Well, fundraising, if it's successful, will certainly help to get past the uh, taking forever aspect of it. Okay, so that's all I've got. Hope you enjoyed this episode and come back for the next one. Uh, Be good. Stay safe, stay healthy. But above all... Until next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. You can find me online at michaelkingswood.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. My web store is ssnstorytelling.com, where you can find all my books in your favorite formats. Purchasing through the web store nets me the most profit, but if you prefer, I'm also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all the other usual e-tailers. If you want to learn about new releases, sign up for my mailing list through the contact form at my website. I guarantee not to spam you. Only send an email when I have some news to share. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.